Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. Joe Biden's $4 billion plan for Central America now appears more urgent than ever. But can it succeed where past USAID packages for the region have fallen short? Indeed, throwing money at problems do not solve them. You need the money, it's necessary, but they're not enough. You have to accompany that with other factors. We knew it was coming, and now it's here. A flood of migrants along the United States' southwest border. To take just one metric, the number of migrant children in custody along the border has tripled over the last two weeks to more than 3,250. The broader number of migrants arrested or encountered by U.S. authorities is now at its highest level for this time of year since 2016. And as in years past, Many of the migrants are coming from Central America's Northern Triangle, the countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. On top of the perennial problems of violence, high unemployment, and other challenges, those countries are also now dealing with the devastation from the COVID-19 pandemic and two major hurricanes in the last year. President Biden has a plan to try to make conditions in the Northern Triangle less dire and hopefully tackle the root causes that are driving this migration. During his campaign, he announced a $4 billion aid package to be distributed to Central America over the next four years. Front and center are efforts to strengthen the rule of law, fight corruption, and combat poverty and economic insecurity. But, you know, the question is, can it really make a difference? Large amounts of aid to Central America is not a new policy for the United States, In fact, between the fiscal years of 2016 and 2021, Congress appropriated more than $3.6 billion to fund human development and strengthen institutions in Central America. Yet, not that much on the ground has changed. And so the question is, can Joe Biden's plan actually make a difference? With us today to address these difficult questions is President Luis Guillermo Solis, a former president of Costa Rica and the interim director of the Kimberly Green Latin American and Caribbean Center at Florida International University. Among many talents, he is also a historian and has studied U.S. efforts to help Central America and where they went wrong. He wrote a recent article for America's Quarterly, bringing to the table some new analysis and new ideas for how to improve USAID going forward. President Solis, thank you for joining us today on the America's Quarterly podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Brian. My pleasure. So let's start by talking about what's happening on the border. We've got a lot of people trying to come across, uh, as I mentioned. Do you think this situation is different from past waves of migrants? And and what do you think in particular is driving this recent surge? I think you already made a very good summary of the reasons that are driving all these uh, immigrants to the border. It's a combination of historical reasons that we could call structural. They have to do with poverty, with insecurity, with lack of opportunities in, in the home countries, as well as with the most recent disastrous events that Honduras, Nicaragua, and a bit El Salvador also suffered with the arrival of two hurricanes category five hurricanes, I mean, two major extreme events that hit almost the same place in Central America twice in less than two weeks. I think this has been obviously something that has heightened the amount of people coming to the United States, attempting to to enter the United States. 
I know that people have lots of different motives. And I think all of us have been closely observing and watching what's happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. But is it your sense that the change in administration in the United States may also have you know, led some people to say, hey, Trump is gone. Let's see if we can give this a shot. Yes, I think that probably some people think that. I don't think that that's going to be the major consideration, though. Most of the people are just coming because of the same reasons they came in the past, with the same hopes they had in the past, uh, struggling to take themselves and their families into a situation that could improve their way of life. You know, I I have uh, said in the past that they do not migrate. They escape their countries. Some people have said that I'm even too uh, lenient in using that adjective, that I should be saying that they are actually being expelled from, from their home countries. I mean, here what we have is a human rights issue being put in its crudest of all possible versions. People are just trying to get themselves a better life. And as long as they see that they can walk or drive or otherwise get themselves into the country, they're going to try. But it's it's clear that those factors have even increased right now. Yes, indeed. The situation has become completely, I would say, exceptional in the sense that the opportunities that were minimal before with the destruction of the economy due to the to the hurricanes has uh, become unmanageable. It's what's actually something to, to be considered is that the, the violence, criminal violence, has lessened in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador during the last year and a half, maybe two years, which is good news. But again, this is not the only reason why they are migrating. So even when some factors have improved in the lives of people from Northern Triangle, some others, and particularly those that have to do with survival and opportunities, continue to be as bad as they were uh, years ago. So President Solis, you published this article with America's Quarterly recently in which you made a really detailed, insightful analysis of what went wrong, or at least what didn't go right in previous U.S. aid plans. And as you point out, these aid plans for the region have been around since the 1960s. What lessons should we learn? And as you look at that arc of the last 60 years or so and where things have fallen short, what stands out to you? Well, the first thing is that, indeed, throwing money at problems do not solve them. And uh, that's one lesson that has been learned, not only in the Americas, but elsewhere in, in the world. You need the money. It's necessary. But they're not enough. You have to accompany that with other factors. Secondly, I think it is uh, sometimes a commonplace to hear that the United States doesn't understand Central American problems and that the United States has only given money for military or security issues. That's not the case. From the 1960s on, from the Alliance for Progress on, the United States has been targeting economic and social maladies in Central America that need to be taken care of. They have insisted in the rule of law. And once and over again, the structural conditions in the Central American countries have inhibited the success of these programs. Clearly, a lot of the money that's allocated to be invested in human development programs ends up not being used simply because of shortcomings in the recipients or because of bureaucratic demands on the institutions here in the United States. And thirdly, I would say, being a professional historian, 
that a lot of the reasons why the money has not been sufficient is that it is meant to be spent in a very short amount of time when we're dealing with problems or dysfunctions, if you will, that have been around for decades, if not hundreds of years. So that all said, what's your evaluation of the Biden program, or at least what we know about it so far? Well, I think it's very positive. I mean, look at the at the objectives it has, uh, the outlook, $4 billion in four years. I mean, that's an enormous amount of money. And, and not only that, you have the, the vision to be used in dealing with some of the country's most complicated issues. My biggest fear is that once again, when you see the results of the $4 billion, the results may not be as good as they are intended to be. And this is why I think there are a number of lessons learned that should be taken into consideration, which I think will be taken into consideration because what I'm saying is not nuclear physics. I mean, this can be seen simply by you know, looking at the, the data that's available, like making our, the right combination of money going to governments and non-governmental agencies, not putting all the money in very short-term objectives, uh, trying to uh, deal with specific areas of support. For example, in the article, I mentioned a very interesting program that Dr. Jill Biden has uh, to support girls and, and young women in Latin America in STEM and STEAM programs, for example. All of these things may help the region to sort of get the sedimentation of resources upon which to build further programs in the future. Let's talk about conditions on the ground in in these countries and specifically the governments. We published a recent article by Patricio Navia and Lucas Perelio uh, in America's Quarterly in which they worried about democratic deterioration and the advance of authoritarianism, not just in Nayib Bukele's El Salvador, but in Honduras and Guatemala as well. Do you agree with those concerns or are you worried too? And how do you think that complicates these efforts at aid? No, I'm very concerned, both with the case of El Salvador, Honduras, uh, Nicaragua is a full-fledged dictatorship and a very brutal and repressive one. And then, of course, Central America is more than the Northern Triangle. I mean, we have Belize, we have Costa Rica, we have Panama as well. And these countries are, are also to be taken into account. So, no, I see clouds in the horizon. And, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see how some of those clouds dissipate, I hope, with, with time. For example, what's happening in El Salvador, one may give an alert to a lot of us of, of the possibility of authoritarian trends developing there. But so far, everything has been done more or less according to the law and the constitution. Honduras is more troublesome. Even as we speak, there are new accusations uh, against President Orlando Hernandez and supposedly contacts he had with uh, organized criminal figures in, in the country. And, and then there's, of course, the background of instability in Honduras, which uh, has been uh, very complicated, electoral and, and, and political mostly. So even when one can, can hope that things are for the better, the reports that we get, including the last report by Freedom House, which was issued the past few days, tend to indicate that Central America remains being a very vulnerable place in many ways. But here's what I see. I see a Biden administration that is determined to help, 
right, that is determined to try to give out aid that will make things on the ground better and therefore stop or at least slow down northward migration. But I also see an administration that is determined to make democracy and battling corruption a core of its foreign policy towards the region and toward these countries in particular. Are you concerned at all that we could end up in a situation where the relationship between the U.S. and those countries deteriorates, which then makes working together towards these solutions more difficult? Well, it has happened in the past. Uh, remember when uh, President Carter made his bid in favor of, of human rights in Central America, the relationship between the United States and Guatemala, El Salvador, uh, and Nicaragua deteriorated a lot. And that brought up a number of problems for, for the Carter administration then. So, you know, we have enough evidence as to know that these things may happen. I would like to see the class half full in the sense that, yes, there are lots of needs. Yes, there are lots of problems. We have an administration in Washington that wants to contribute. And I see also a lot of organizations in Central America that are willing to play a more constructive role, not necessarily only civil society organizations, but in general organizations, uh, including governmental ones that could be partnering with the Biden administration to, to make a difference. And the other thing that I find very compelling is the idea of the United States joining other international actors like the European Union, Japan, South Korea, that are currently also financing programs in Central America in a more harmonious and well-coordinated foreign policy in the region. This may be a very powerful tool to use by the administration in, in Central America. Why would that be better? Well, it puts more pressure political and diplomatic pressure on the governments. Secondly, it allows for the impact to be larger because of the amounts of money that can be devoted to certain programs. And then it takes away part of the pressures that the four-year cycle, the electoral cycle, puts upon both governments in Europe and in the United States. I mean, you would like to see, if you're in the administration in Washington, results by the fourth year that you can claim as victories in, in this region, particularly a region that has been highlighted by the administration. But that always puts a lot of pressure on the short term. And as I have said, I think that some of these monies ought to be seen and put in a longer term perspective in order for them to work, particularly in areas such as health or education. You know, President Solis, we've talked so much already about what the U.S. should do and about what American politicians should do. But, you know, there's another side to this, which is the governments in the Northern Triangle themselves. I mean, you have conversations with politicians in those three countries. What are they saying about the aid efforts that are taking shape? I mean, do they have reservations about it? Do they see it as a positive thing? Is it prompting any change? What I hear from the people I speak with, which are mostly like-minded individuals as myself, is very positive. I mean, they look at the, the Biden administration's decision to invest in Central America as a very positive indication of heightened importance of the region in the foreign affairs map of the United States. Now, my impression from the other sectors is that they are expectant because this talking about not giving preference to governments, forcing the hand a little bit in matters pertaining human rights, fomenting 
uh, certain sectors that may not necessarily be those that the Central American elites favor, for example, in terms of the protection of the environment or the promotion of uh, social programs that may require national contributions above and beyond what the current budgets provide. All of that makes people to be a little uncertain, especially those who know that their interests, their private particular interests, may be put at stake by a more engaged Biden administration in, in Central America. Yeah, I mean, it threatens their power, right? It does. It threatens their power and it threatens the way in which they know they can continue to take advantage of the situation as it currently stands. I mean, let's let's be clear. There's a lot of hypocrisy regarding migrations, for example. Migrations take away from the original countries where they come from a lot of pressure and they bring into the country a lot of money in the ways of remittances. So, you know, the tit-for-tat here is not as clear as one would expect, and I think that that repeats itself in many other fields. There's so many challenges in these countries, and the anti-corruption fight is one of them. But before we get into that, I want to talk about something you referenced earlier, which is the fight against violence. Because homicide rates in the Northern Triangle have come down sharply since peaking around 2014, 2015. I mean, in the case of El Salvador, for example, the homicide rate has fallen 80% since 2015. How do you explain that? And, you know, maybe you could talk about that a little bit in the context of this recent special report that America's Quarterly did on transnational crime in the region um, with the collaboration of, of Florida International University, where, of course, you are. Is that a contradiction? I mean, we, we talked about gangs strengthening, but at the same time, the homicide rate is coming down. How do you explain that? Well, I would like to, to think that there has been more coordination amongst the authorities of the Northern Triangle and with the United States, which is a major partner, obviously. Uh, I know that a number of policies and strategies have been put in place in the Northern Triangle that has made the fighting against drugs particularly more effective. Vetting has been, as I understand from specialists in the region, enhanced, and this is also very important because it provides trust which is a very valuable commodity in security studies. Now, this is not to say that narco-trafficking activities have lessened. I mean, what we're talking here is of violence. The violence expression is what has been put under control, and still the indices are high. But I would say that's one on the one hand. I mean, better coordination, equipment, etc. And on the other hand, we would have to see what has been happening in, in the countries themselves, in El Salvador, for example, the government suggested, and there was a big research made by El Faro, as you know, one of the most important news media in El Salvador, an agreement with the Mareros and some of the groups that one would understand are the core of that violence in El Salvador. This being the case, there may be arrangements that have been made with them that we don't know of openly because the government, they have not given any details about them if they're happening, that uh, may have also contributed to that decrease in, in violent crime. And some of it may just be a case of the gangs being strong. I mean, as Brian Fonseca wrote in the issue of AQ that we did together, sometimes when the violence rate comes down, it's a sign that the gangs are strong and not warring with each other, not necessarily that they've been broken. 
So if we talk about now the, the fight against corruption, I mean, look, this is an area where there have just been numerous setbacks in the region over the last couple of years. You know, the Guatemalan government expelled the International Anti-Corruption Commission, CICIG, in 2019, and, and MASI, the Honduran equivalent, was dissolved in 2020. Is there anything that the United States, or for that matter, other countries can do to nudge this fight forward without you know, seeming like they're imposing, you know, these traditional arguments that you hear about the U.S. trying to weaponize the use of anti-corruption. I mean, how how can governments toe that line? Well, I guess that the most effective tactic the United States uh, can apply uh, on fighting some kinds of corruption is following the money. I mean, follow the money seems to be the best advice because the United States has the technical capacity to do it because it can be done in American territory and American banks and because the United States has the capacity to implement measures that are very scary for those who are doing those kinds of uh, actions in Central America or anywhere else in the world. Secondly, I, I think that there is a lot of, of logic in trying to support the administration of justice institutions. Now, again, this has been done before. I remember back in the 1990s, a lot of money was put into the training and the supplying with computers at the time. They were just becoming very important uh, instruments in Central America. After the invasion in Panama in 1989, a number of very serious entities in the United States and American universities, including FIU, developed very comprehensive administration of justice programs in Central America. And I think that that needs to be kept, that emphasis on the administration of justice. But then again, you know, most of what has been done or not done in the administration of justice in our countries is with the responsibility not of the United States, but of the national elites, political, economic, social elites, including obviously those elites that are not in power and who are represented in the parliaments and, and who are administering the law, creating laws. My next question was actually about elites, because we talk about politicians, and we've also talked about organized crime. But there is another core component here, which is the business elites in these countries, which you know, have historically been self-protecting, often criminal, and resistant to outside pressure for the kinds of changes that are needed socially, economically, in order for conditions in these countries to improve. You know, what are your observations on this front? I mean, have you sensed any change in tone from the people who you speak to, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, who are kind of from the upper classes? I mean, is there more of a realization of the need to change than there was maybe a couple years ago? Well, it's very varied. You know, one cannot say that they are only unwilling to collaborate uh, throughout the, the region. I think that some of those elites have been very transformational and they have been modernizing themselves for a long, long, long time. But there are also groups, very powerful groups, that are resisting any change and are unwilling to do things that elites elsewhere do as a matter of fact every year, like paying taxes, for example, which I think is a fundamental part of the problem because inequality has to do a lot with the, the gaps between those who have and those who have not. But I would not like to make it generalizations over the, the entrepreneurial elites in the private sector. Some are very 
conservative and, and therefore very resistant. Some others are willing to collaborate. But I would like to think of the elites also as a combination in which you find people that are not necessarily in business, but also church elites, uh, unions, even narcos are part of the elites because they're making decisions. I mean, here we have a big blob of organizations of different types, which contribute in many times, not all the time, with the politicians, obviously, in the mishandling of the countries. We have to be very careful in not making generalizations. But, you know, we have to put them on the spot and, and make them responsible for the administration of the countries in the region. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. It's always hard to generalize. My final question for you, President Solis, and I'm almost hesitant to ask this because I know it's a question that you get a lot, but the question is essentially, is there anything that we can learn in the context of the conversation that we've been having from Costa Rica? And the reason why I'm hesitant to ask is because Costa Rica has always seemed so exceptional to me in so many ways for reasons that surely our listeners will know, beginning with the fact that it's the only country in the region with no military, long history of democracy. You know, is there anything in the Costa Rican experience that as we think about kind of the latest version of this debate about what to do in the Northern Triangle and how outside countries can play a role that is worth mentioning right now? After the experience we've had with COVID, Brian, I have the growing sense that one of the fundamental things that we've had in Costa Rica that other countries in the Central American region had not enjoyed in the same amount is institutionality. And this is something that I find extraordinary in terms of health, for example. The Costa Rican health model, I think, holds very strongly before the pandemic. But it is also true in terms of the rule of law. It has to do with the role of the judiciary in the decisions that are made in the country. Uh, it has to do with education and the importance of that as a centerpiece in the construction of a vision of, a, of the country. Uh, so institutions are important. We should not take them for granted. When institutions are taken for granted, and especially political leaders start not abiding by the law, which is in and on itself an institution, then things become very complicated for a democracy to withstand. And if anything, I would like institutions to be stronger in the Northern Triangle, that decision-making is not ad hoc, but adheres to the rule of law, which in my estimation is the cornerstone, the fundamental building block of, of a democratic regime. Well, let's hope so. President Solis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly podcast. You can read more at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Leonie Rawls. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas.